This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're going to discuss uh, an issue that's uh, very prominent in the news, an issue that has been central to American history from the very beginning, and an issue that is likely to uh, be central to the next few years uh, of the renewal of our democracy, and that is the question of religion and democracy. How do we uh, reconcile uh, religious beliefs, uh, which are often uh, focused on otherworldly concerns, uh, with a democracy that's uh, hyper-concerned with the condition of human beings in this world. Uh, this is not a new issue, as I've said, uh, but it does seem to be an issue that's getting more attention and becoming more controversial in recent years. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, one of the most important uh, experts working on these issues in the United States today, someone who comes from a religious background herself, but, but even more important, is uh, a leading social scientist of religion and American policymaking, uh, Ashlyn Hand. She is a PhD candidate uh, finishing her dissertation uh, at the LBJ School uh, here at UT. Ashlyn, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. It's, it's wonderful to have you. We will start, of course, uh, with our scene-setting poem from uh, Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Life and Death. Life and Death. Okay. Uh, you're, you're tackling the big issues today, huh? Mm-hmm. Let's hear it. Religion is life and death when we pray under the fluorescence, when we scribble our commandments on the tabernacle walls of our living rooms, when we sing of the sins of a thousand ancient kings and the hero's journey of life in David, who gave death to death in Goliath, and when we toast under the promise of the life brought forth from the rubble of Solomon's walls after the customary lachaims, religion is life and death. And we, the heavenly Savior, the Messiah for the world, are for life before it is created. And we force death upon it when it begins to talk, when it begins to scream, and to rage against the dying of the mosquito light bulbs. And it is life for which we scream against the never-ending fusillades on the Capitol lawn. But death that we refuse to see in the eyes of the homeless fanatic just sailing around the Horn of Africa, mentally waiting for death. A religion is death, and religion is life, and religion is everything that seeps out of librarians' briefcases onto the floor, onto the floor of buses air-conditioned out of their mind by crazing diesel engines that wander past the borders of life. And religion is all the dust and death beneath the pantry shelves of supermarkets that rolls off the grocery carts in the children's shoes. And religion is life and death. And sometimes you don't understand the specific cocktail of living the buffet platter of dearly departed. And sometimes we sometimes we don't understand religion, and sometimes we don't understand the religious. But sometimes we're able to see that religion is life and death and everything in between. Hmm. I like the buffet of life. And what was it? Was it the cocktail? Dearly departed. The dear, mm. yeah. That's extraordinary, Zachary. A very thoughtful, uh, moving poem. What 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 are you saying in your poem? My poem was really about how um, c- how religion is so important in our daily lives and how it influences us all all around us, even if we don't see it, and how contrasting religion can be and how contradictory, but also how clear cut at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. How necessary it is in a yeah. certain way, right? So, Ashlyn, uh, religion has has been central to our history since our founding and all the many ways our society was founded by many groups. Uh, why does it seem like it's become more divisive for us as a society in recent years? 
It's a good question and one I'm not sure I would frame quite that way because I do think the question of religion and politics um, has been difficult in our own society since its founding. It's also been diff- difficult on a world stage. Sure, sure. And so the history of religion in general, no matter what the faith is, no matter what the geography is, is littered with examples and stories of such heartache that's born out of religion and such division, right? but also such unity, and right. I know we'll get there eventually, and such beauty, too. So that rich combination, and it goes back to what Zachary was saying, the contradictory forces that combine, uh, I think have been represented in the United States since our founding. Um, but I, I would say we're just now getting to a point where we're realizing how ambitious the First Amendment really is. Interesting. Um, because of the conceptualization of pluralism changing. Because at the founding of the United States, we're mainly talking about different Protestant sects. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of see that continuing to grow, continuing to expand, to including a conversation about whether or not we can have a Catholic president um, in the Kennedy campaign. That was a huge issue. It was a huge issue. And and now we've, you know, moved past that, or it seems like we have moved past that. I think it's Diana Eck who talks about it was actually the change in our immigration laws mm-hmm. in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. um, ending some of our exclusionary policies that then allowed for greater influx of, of religious diversity. But now we have a very different religious landscape. And the profound ambition that's embedded in the First Amendment is still is, is coming out in new and new and distinct ways. And I think I think you see the broadening and the Uh, more complicated pluralist system just based on more diverse religions here in the United States, combining with a rise of the nuns, if you will, or those that carry no religious faith. And that that collision is difficult. Yes. yes. And and, uh, what are the things that make it particularly difficult now? Because you're obviously correct uh, that religious divisions have been with us from the start in in social and political ways. Uh, And we've come together at moments, but those divisions have always been there. Uh, At certain moments, though, it does seem like in our current moment that the divisions seem more evident than the, the sources of unity. And, and why do you think that's, that's We're definitely the case? at a punctuation. Whether or not it's the only punctuation, of course not. But we're at a punctuation. And I think it's at least in part because of the political polarization that we're experiencing in this day and age. And so the rhetoric from um, the Trump Hillary, you know, the Clinton Trump campaign, I think it's carrying over. Right. And I think um, has has made Certain conversations that used to be able to occur without vitriol um, have an added sense of, um, I'm not quite sure the word I'm getting at there, but an added sense of pain underneath sure. it, um, defensiveness uh, that leads to a lack of empathy mm-hmm. for other groups. And, and I, I guess one thing that historians have long struggled with is to what extent is is the religion driving the politics or the politics driving the religion? Of course, it's Mm -hmm. some of both. But when people come forward and say, I like this candidate or I hate this candidate because of her or his religious beliefs, are they using that to to justify lower taxes or social programs they want? Or is it the religion that's driving them? And how do we understand these? You write on foreign policy in particular. How do you you understand this in that context? It's a great question. I I think particularly because they're 
isn't an answer because the rhetoric often looks the same. So to me, the way that you have to actually get to that is what are the actions showing? Um, and so if somebody's espousing a value that comes from their faith, maybe it's a universal one, maybe it's not like human dignity, right. but then you see in their policy choices over and over again that they um, are clearly not like not giving that to each person and they're clearly not consistent in the way that they're conferring dignity on people, then to me, it's like you start wondering what other incentives are behind here. Right. What else is going right. on? What other goal might be here that yeah. has nothing to do with dig- with dignity altogether? The opposite could be could be true as well. Somebody you know says something that almost has become a common refrain and it's easy to write them off as not sure. being sincere. Sure. But that's also untrue a lot of the time when right. people ha- do have sincerely religious beliefs. Right. Um, and, and that those values that they have from their faith come out in their policy decisions, mm-hmm. which is what we want. Absolutely. I mean, do, do you think that uh, social media, which has been a topic of many of our discussions sure. uh, and other new forms of communication, uh, mass communication and also personal communication, do they make it harder to differentiate uh, real belief from rationalization? I think so. I do. I think so. I think it I think it makes it more difficult um, because a, I think we have an ability to speak without as much thought right. and get it and get our message out to as many people as we can. Um, and that's problematic. But then I also think that we know that our so- social media groups are segmented based on faith sometimes, but based on communities and identities that we get stuck in those. And right. it's easier to say things that you know exactly how your audience is going to respond right. to, right. which, again, those questions of other incentives come in immediately. It, it's interesting because it's almost as if the uh, tendencies we've talked about to create affinity groups and segregated groups uh, through social media are then reinforced again by what's a pre-existing, perhaps, a set of divisions uh, along religious and racial and ethnic lines. Absolutely. There's also an element of taking advantage of sincere yes. believers that yes. happens. Um, I think that when there is sincere belief and that that's moving in a specific direction, then it makes sense to me that then people would recognize that almost as a vulnerability or something to exploit. Interesting. I think that's a really good point. Uh, so that takes us to uh, the current controversy over abortion laws sure. uh, in states like Alabama and a number of other states, uh, and then states like Oregon, which are going in the opposite direction mm-hmm. and trying to make uh, abortions available to everyone at, at, uh, without cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, how do we uh, understand not the different positions individuals take, I think that's a personal choice, right? But why this is becoming such a uh, major issue today. Why are certain states trying to prevent uh, even young girls who have been raped from having access to an abortion? Why are other states trying to make this more accessible to the the wider population? What's going on here? So I've thought a lot about this issue, and I think part of what we see that's going on is the fact that there's a policy opening that that the Republican or maybe I should say conservatives on this issue, pro-life community more broadly, um, are seeing for the first time. And it's real. It, there's a change on the Supreme Court. For the first time, I think in the last three decades, we've had an actual possibility of seeing Roe v. Wade being reconsidered. Uh, and that, I think, is unique to this period. And I think that's because of that, some of the laws as extreme as they may seem, um, are pragmatic in that way of getting kicked up, of getting kicked up, hoping that those lawsuits, you know, it's hard to watch when you see the ACLU immediately come in to file 
file different le- or file different. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, litigation. Litigation against against these various laws. I'm particularly thinking of Alabama right now. That thinking about that and wondering if that's not exactly what they wanted mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. Like sure, making a sure. controversial case and trying I, to get it. I think it is what yeah, they want. Yeah, it is what they want. It's and getting predictable it, also. Right? Indeed, and smart, uh, and it makes sense. So I think that I think that that's what we're seeing. So for the first time, the uh, religious right has a real voice that they haven't had in a long time. Um, I think that the combination of that is a backlash from progressives that heighten the intensity and heighten the rhetoric around this issue to make it even more black, it seem like it's even more black and white when the majority of Americans fall somewhere in the gray of, course. of, of, of believing that abortion should be legal in certain circumstances. Um, some, of course, think it should be legal in all on the other side. There are some that think it should be, you know, that there should be no exceptions and that it's a life right when it begins and that we need to protect that. So I I do think when you're talking about stuff like bodily autonomy and like when life begins, it makes sense that the those are the religious questions. Sure, sure. But it does seem similar to the the gun issue that um, the vast majority of Americans, uh, religious uh, for different denominations, are somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe some are 30% closer to one direction or 30% closer to the other. And uh, what seems so striking about our moment, about this punctuation, as you so wisely Mm -hmm. called it, um, is, is that the policy debate is pulling to the extremes that represent almost no one or so it seems. And I, I think that's I think that's less true for the ardent pro-life community. There is a strong ardent pro-life community that thinks there should be no exceptions. So I think there's Even a larger Even for young girls who have been raped. I think yeah. There are I mean there is. Okay. Yeah. Um and I think that that I think that's a larger community than people maybe that okay. if we're going back to the partial birth abortion who would say no, you can have an abortion up until the last moment. Like there, that's a smaller, smaller right. community. Zachary, did you have a question on this? Well, I was wondering how you see, like, um, with the rise of all these new laws, how do you see us reconciling these two views? Because I think it's something that it's really hard for, because like one state, for many different states to live in contrast between these issues do you think there's a a way to resolve these different religious divisions in a way that doesn't deny people's religious beliefs but actually unites them? I not to be negative and Jeremy might, you know, get on to me for this. Mm-hmm. I would say I think this issue no. I think this issue is that is that polarizing uh, for good reason. Um but I do think there's a whole lot of questions that w- how do we reconcile is how many times we get stuck on this particular piece yes. of it and thus like if you know you have somebody that's ardently pro-choice and someone that's ardently pro-life no longer being able to speak about anything not just abortion um in my view like a pragmatic approach there would be recognize you're not going to come to the middle on abortion because your fundamental your worldviews are so fundamentally different that this is going to be something that is pulling on both sides but let's talk about like caring for young moms. Right. Let's talk about right. revolutionizing the 
pre-K system to where we have things to do. Let's talk about comprehensive sex ed. Let's talk about kind of these broader issues that, and and again, maybe even still there's going to be differences and some of those you'll be able to do within some communities, some you won't. But I do think that there's actually more room for commonality um, when you do respect each other's sincerely held convictions. And, And I guess the tragedy of our current moment, just building on your excellent point, is that the, the way these issues are now framed makes it harder and harder to have those conversations about the areas where we do have common existence. For example, in many communities, including Austin, uh, there's a backlash against sex ed coming from the very groups that are trying to restrict Absolutely. access to abortion, which 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 seems like a contradiction, but it's because the issue has become so polarized, right? Sure, sure. And again, that's what I mean by you're going to have to find the communities that you can relate to and you can find those commonalities. So maybe with the far, far no sex education in schools, like none of it whatsoever, maybe then we're just going to talk about what do we do for pre-K education or there's still room for growth and there's still Mm -hmm. room for conversations, but you're not always going to be the one to decide what those conversations are. Um, And so some of it, in my view, is a humility of saying, I'm open to working with you, even though I think we should be working on these things. It's still saying like, I'm open to working with you, even if I don't get to set the priorities. And I think that that's that's useful. It's very useful. And it it, it relates to some of the, the groundbreaking research you're doing, which is on how certain political figures have found ways to do this. So so what do we learn from that research? How do how do we, you know, put the meat on the bones of what you've just described? How in in a world as um, swirling with controversy, where people are sort of waiting, attack dogs are waiting to jump on you for <laughs> for moving to the middle. How 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 can we draw inspiration from figures in prior periods who have sure. done this? So I would say if I look back on my own research, which has compared the way that presidential administrations in particular have looked at international religious freedom abroad and the different strategies that the United States takes to promote religious freedom elsewhere. I think I've come up with two overarching lessons that might have something to say for our current day and our domestic context, because the connections between our foreign policy and our domestic policy in this area aren't that separate. Right. Um, So first of all, is that we have to know the religious context in which we're operating Mm in. Um, So whether that's a different country, like China, where religion is all but suppressed in almost every faith, um, versus some place like Saudi Arabia, where there's a theocracy that is dominating a society. Um, Those are just two examples that actually look like, in some ways, what we're experiencing here now, which is there are new, new trends there's new changes, the new diverse groups of people, yes. religions growing and it's waning. All of those are happening at the same time. And so the first thing we need to do is is really extend empathy where we are and to learn about other faiths, to learn about what other belief systems hold to be most precious, um, because I think it's in learning about a society and in learning about the differences and diversities that are encompassed in the United States that we might actually find those areas that I mentioned to you, Zachary, earlier, to find those areas of commonality where even if we're not going to make any progress on the abortion issue, maybe we really can do something to help young mothers. Um, And I don't think that can happen unless you know what the context that you're working in is. And and it seems that's an issue when you're dealing in an international space or you're dealing close to home. 
Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, for, for many people, myself included, parts of Alabama are more foreign than, than parts of Europe or Asia. Uh, which raises the question that's been with us uh, and will continue to be at the center of our podcast. How do we do that? How do we get out of our bubbles? Um, what you're basically saying is we have to sure. understand people who live and think and view the world in fundamentally different ways. How do we do that? That's so hard. Uh, it, it, it seems uh, every episode that that's an issue for us. Sure. I mean, it, it is happening. That's one thing I would say. Some of it is what can we do as individually. Some of it is the fact that I think, um, you know, in Robert Putnam's book, American Grace, he talks about just the overwhelming growth of interfaith marriages. He talks about the one like one major thing we can do to promote interreligious dialogue is having one person in our social structure that is of a different faith and that it only takes one to then attract multiple. Um, and so I think there are small things we can do to really open up about our own religious beliefs. Cause that's another thing is like now in, in certain places, and I would say the Academy is one where it can be really difficult to yes. talk about religion yes. and to share that part of life yes, true. Um, because you think it's going to be associated with a whole nother set of assumptions about you that aren't real. Uh, and so I think that if we can open up about what we do believe and how we process that, but in a way that is hoping to start dialogue instead of end it, that, that, uh, that that's really a first step. I think it's a great, a great idea. Zachary, is that something you see happening with young people? Are people opening up and connecting across religions in, in your circles? Yeah, I really think there's a lot of progress, especially because you were talking about like inter-religious uh, marriages. And I think that that's something that's really helpful, actually, when we're talking about um, like religious diversity, because when people feel like they're from different backgrounds, they're more comfortable with different backgrounds. And I've noticed, particularly in school, I think that the tolerance for other religion has really improved. But I do think that there's still a lot of ignorance and uncomfortable, and a lot of people feel uncomfortable talking about these issues. Like people who don't, who don't even know that certain faiths are present in their classrooms right. or certain people believe Absolutely. certain things. And I think that's really important that we understand those backgrounds and understand that, that that some of these religious beliefs aren't far off. They're actually very close. We just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. That's we a don't really, see it. That's a really important point. So, so the last question I wanted to ask both of you, uh, Ashlyn and Zachary, is uh, in light of this really enlightening discussion about uh, the sources of um, what we might call religious politics and the the limitations, but also the opportunities that exist, especially opportunities for dialogue and for opening one's mind. Uh, what would be the productive way for one of our listeners who is very, very angry uh, at the recent uh, abortion laws in a place like um, Alabama or the opposite, someone who's very angry that others are very angry about this. What would be the productive ways you would counsel as an expert in this area, Ashlyn? How would you counsel someone to channel their anger into a productive mechanism for bringing people together rather than reinforcing the division? I think I'd go back to what I mentioned earlier of finding ways to get involved that might be outside of just reactionary. So starting to think about things that you can do individually that would be um, productive, but also active. So that getting involved, whether it's, you know, if you find yourself completely dismayed by the events of the last few weeks, if you get involved and 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 keep talking, keep speaking. Um, and that and that's one thing I think is important to say. This is not 
there are severe, there are very clear differences that are sincere and that are going to be maintained. And so what I'm not saying is try to, you know, weaken your position because that's not it. Um, What I would ask is, is to look at the United States and maybe go back to how you felt uh, in 2016. And maybe you were super excited that Trump won. Something tells me more of our listeners probably weren't. But um, so say you're at that moment. Remember that half almost it was almost 50-50 in the United States. Um, and I guarantee you can find some empathy for half of the population. Mm. So if you start from a place of this is not us versus them, this is not the elites versus anything else, um, there are religious people of sincere belief on sides of all kinds of issues. And if you can start from a place of empathy and benefit of the doubt, assume benefit of the doubt first, then decide what you want to do with it. If you assume benefit of the doubt first, then find something active you can do um, to find a new way to make a connection. So whether I'm going back to the same examples, but if we're still using the abortion case, um, go back to what are things besides just saying how angry you are that you can do to help women who find themselves in the situation? Right. What's something you can do in your own neighborhood to where you might be able to even help one person who finds themselves in this situation? I, I think that's such great advice, right? Find ways to channel your anger into helping those that you want to help. Use that as, as additional motivation. And, and that's traditionally what we've done as a society. We've had controversies like this throughout our history. Mm-hmm. But social groups, often non-governmental groups of different kinds, groups of students, groups of anti-war protesters, groups of uh, anti-communists, whoever they are. My groups have come together. Uh, the whole civil rights movement was built around churches Absolutely. doing this. Z- Zachary, does that seem realistic for uh, young men and women of your age to, to do this? Yes. I think that that's something that, um, like, I think that respectful conversation is actually something that um, that kids are actually learning or, or not learning at a very young age <laughs> because of, I think there's a lot more conversation and discussion. But I also think that we still the problem is I think we still need to and we still have to have discussions about controversial issues because those issues still need to be addressed. I think the problem is that I do see that sometimes there's a problem because people just try and avoid those issues instead of actually addressing them. Right. And I think we need to move beyond those differences when it comes to other issues, but there also needs to be a time when we can discuss them. And I don't think there's a good time and a good place and a good way to discuss these issues. And we issues. need to make time and make space yeah. for that, mm-hmm. right? Well, when, sure, please. Last thing I'll say on that point, I think one small piece of advice I might offer there is to limit the scope of conversation mm-hmm. at one given mm-hmm. time. Um, so because we're in this polarized mm-hmm. world and we are making, like even naturally we've been trained to make assumptions about what other people believe or think based on maybe some silliest things as what they look like or what gender they are Absolutely. or what religion they are, we 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 take that to mean something that it doesn't mean. Um, and so that, that would be kind of as you're going into those conversations, part of the way to make them safer is to limit them yeah. um, and be clear about what it is that you're talking about and what you're going to, what you're going to put off on hold. Cause I think our problem is that we try to take on that entire conversation in yeah, one right. sitting and then it bleeds into now we're talking about seven different social issues and it's overwhelming and right. religion is mixed up in the middle. So. And, and in that context, when you throw everything together in Zachary's cafe, a cocktail or buffet, as he puts Put it in, in his opening mm-hmm. poem, uh, then the the most outrageous stuff always jumps to the top, right? 
This has been such a valuable con- a conversation. I think uh, one of the major insights here um, is, uh, despite our differences, the opportunities that exist, especially for those who are not stuck in political positions around these issues, to return, in a sense, to basics and have conversations around uh, the common issues that motivate religious belief. In a certain way, we have to spend less time arguing over doctrine and labels and more time talking about uh, the things we believe in that bring us together. And that is the American tradition. This is what Tocqueville noticed, right? That Americans go to different kinds of churches and different kinds of synagogues and mosques, but yet uh, they're able to find ways to work together and talk together. And, and I, think, uh, I think that's very possible. I think we've modeled that here. So uh, thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you, Zachary, for uh, an enlightening discussion today. Uh, I think we've, we've done a, a remarkable job of highlighting the uh, challenges and opportunities in our democracy. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.